Welcome to The Last Call. It's a conversation between two boozy hacks. My name's John Sweeney. I'm in London. And in New York, Mike Weiss. Uh, Mike, I'm drinking a very, very long, very tall um, Tanqueray Sevilla gin with a dash of orange, a bucket of gin, and a bit of tonic water. And you? I am drinking a very, very strong pot of black coffee because, uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, life in lockdown with a five-year-old has begun to eat at the uh, at the, the gray matter uh, much more effectively and aggressively than alcohol could ever do. So I feel like drinking at noon is probably not a good idea going forward. At the beginning, it was fun. It was like extended holiday. Now it's, uh, you know... It's darkness at noon, so <laughs> I've got, I've got, I don't know what even this is. It's either some Starbucks or a chock full of nuts concoction, but it's like drinking battery acid. It isn't, it, like, Darkness at Noon is one of my favorite books, and Kersler is one of my um, favorite writers. And and living, I, I mean, your life, in the, I mean, all our, our lives are weird and strange, but it isn't like being locked up in one of Stalin's cells. No, of course not. But you, you, you reach for the <laughs> metaphor that, that most yes. do. And, you know, um, I, I mentioned it when we did the, the, the show with Chris Atkins, you know, just, just that, that sort of haunting imagery. Of, it's, it's not just a, a book about totalitarianism. It's a book about prison and life in a state of quarantine or, or isolation. Um, you know, pacing your cell, tapping in Morse code on the, the prison wall to get even the slightest bit of human interaction and outside your own head. All of these things kind of, I, I can't, I can't escape them. I'm not drawing moral equivalents. I'm just saying it's, uh, you know, it's, we all live a kind of a, a Kesslerian state at the moment. And by the way, they talk about the anxiety of influence. I was, asked, I was telling you, how did you manage to publish 12 books with uh, Rugrats running around the house? And I'm, I'm stalled on my current book because I can't sit down and focus with Disney show tunes and temper tantrums happening and as mood music in the background. But, you know, Kessler wrote that manuscript on in various states of incarceration, internment and house arrest by the French authorities. And I think it was 1940. He was on the run where um, they suspected him of all things of being a Soviet spy. And here he was busy scribbling away at the greatest anti-Soviet and anti-Stalinist novel ever written. So there you go. Yeah. It's called, um, his memoir of that time is called the scum of the earth Mm -hmm. and everybody must read it. And it's an, it's an awful tragic tribute to, um, to a tragic generation of, of central European intellectuals and many, many of them on the left, some of them card carrying communists who, both felt betrayed by the Nazi-Soviet pact, but also got locked up by the increasingly um, fascistic French state, yeah. which was sort of preparing itself for uh, for being overrun by the Nazis in some awful way. And the scum of the earth of the title are his friends, uh, many of them Jewish as well, who who were locked up. He managed to get out because he was a famous... Um, writer and he had friends in England who had influence and eventually um, that worked for him but many many of his friends were were stuck there and when the Nazis uh, finally took over France their life uh, ended not so well and many of his friends committed suicide because as Auden said, the hopes of a low dishonest decade were all smashed to pieces. Well, if you read, um, if you also read his essay, which is the, the essay to read in The God That Failed, which is a collection of essays about communist writers or fellow travelers of communism who said goodbye to all that, principally because of the Hitler-Stalin pact, but also because of the disclosures about what the Soviet Union was actually getting up to and uh, dealing with how it dealt with its own people. Um Again, it's impossible not to pick some of these metaphors up when dealing with the current news cycle. Kessler describes this sort of double bookkeeping, or actually not even double bookkeeping, the flick of a light switch essentially in the mind to just change the narrative to um, the Queen's croquette game in Alice in Wonderland, where the balls are hedgehogs and they keep rolling down the the pitch and the, the goalposts keep moving just arbitrarily. And I, I, I defy you to find a better metaphor, metaphor to describe 
well, basically why we founded this podcast. You know, I, I opened the newspaper this morning and I read that the judge in the Michael Flynn case does not agree with the Department of Justice. The prosecutor or the prosecution, which brought the case initially, has now argued that they agree with the defense that A, a lie wasn't told, and B, more importantly, that the, there was no predicate for the FBI to interview the, the then national security advisor uh, in the course of which he then lied to the FBI. And the judge has now said he's suspicious of this. He's brought in a, an external judge to weigh in on the matter, a guy who locked up John Gotti, no less, so a, a mafia hunting judge. Uh, and the whole thing just, it, 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 it reminds me of the croquette game. You know, it's, uh, you know, things that we had decided that we had agreed upon were the rules are no longer the rules. So infinite number of little hedgehogs rolling along the pitch, changing the scoreboard at random, changing the way that the game is played. And again, n- not even the slightest hint of cognitive dissonance from the pro-Trump right, which really have convinced themselves that this is all a big stitch up from the beginning. Um, the FBI agents who F- Bill Barr have relied on to put out this motion to dismiss have come out and said, actually, no, uh, you've got it all wrong and you've misinterpreted the memos that were leaked to the press and decla- after being declassified. Um, the head of, I think, counterintelligence at the FBI wrote a long op-ed in the New York Times saying Barr completely cocked up the assessment that I had made at the time. You have this, this notion, which I, I still don't understand, that, that Flynn didn't even lie to the FBI, even though he pleaded guilty to doing so. And the judge essentially told him, you have to do it, do so intelligently and of sound mind and body, et cetera, et cetera. No, 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 no. They say he didn't lie to the FBI. I've heard from sources on the Hill that actually the FBI agents who interviewed him firmly, solidly believe that they, that, that he lied to them. I mean, the whole thing is just absolute madness. So again, it's, it's, it's hard not to be drawn to some of the kind of, you know, Robert Conquest called it mind slaughter, uh, which I think is a very evocative term to describe some of the 20th century conceits, especially held by intellectuals, that just made absolutely no sense. It's hard not to be drawn to those reference points, isn't it? Uh, because we don't have a we don't yeah. have a grammar. I mean, the only thing we, we've got now to describe the Trump era is reality television. I find that's okay and adequate, but it doesn't really rise to the challenge of what we're dealing with. It um so um. Our two or three listeners to the last call will know that this is a conversation in which we, we try and work out whose country is more fucked up. Uh, and um, uh, week in, week out, um, which country is more fucked up, Britain or uh, the United States? And uh, week in, week out, uh, Mike wins. Um, the Americans win. We've um, the reality. So what's happening in, in America right now? is very reminiscent of when I've been to Russia or when I've read stories about Russia. And Peter, I can never pronounce his name properly. It's Pomer. How would you pronounce it? Yeah, he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. Yeah. And he's written, um, and there's another guy called David Satter. And both of them um, go for surreal titles, um, which I muddle in my um, increasingly gaga mind. Um, But they... There's this sense that there is no such thing as a fact that truth and reality is conditional upon those who hold power. Now, this always, always, always was uh, was was the reality of 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 um, Russia under Putin, and how something that was a fact suddenly would dissolve uh, and become a, 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 an anti-fact. Mm-hmm. Now, this is now being in, imported into the United States um, by Trump and the Republican Party. And the thing I wanted to ask you, Mike, was, I mean, I still don't understand um, how smart Republicans can, can, can go along with this. Do they not see that the verdict of history, which is coming down at them like a chopper uh, at the next um, presidential election this November, um, God willing, inshallah, Surely they realize that if they stick to Trump, they're going to get crucified. Or am I wrong in being silly? Well, so it depends on who you're talking about. If you're talking about Republicans in elected office, I think it's just a matter of, of rallying around the, the party leadership, which is always the president. If the president 
from your party is in in the White House um, and maintaining their own hold on power. So they know that Trump is insane. They know that he's a moron. They know that he has ravaged the American economy with the one thing that he had to to run on re-election with uh, because of his inadequate and incompetent response to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but they still want to win. And so they're not going to speak out against him. And those who do, uh, even if they, they, they mildly criticize him, um, and I suppose Mitt Romney didn't mildly, but, but actually quite severely did when he voted to impeach, um, are, are turned into unpersons. They are kind of disappeared from the, uh, the Republican uh, discourse, unless it's, of course, it's to, to do the sort of two minutes of hate at them on Twitter. Uh, then you have the sort of conservative thinkers, the, the pundit media talking head class. And here it gets a little trickier. So I think a lot of these people don't particularly care for Donald Trump, the person. They'd be quite happy if, you know, he passed away in his sleep and it was suddenly President Pence, as long as some of the policies were in place. Now, the people that I follow most closely tend to be focused, as I am, on, on foreign policy. And I, I, I detect with the obsession over what's variously been called Obamagate, or the Flynn scandal, or the deep state um, attempt to to oust the president's hand-picked intelligence officials. I detect in that two things. Number one, uh, Mike Flynn was the Iran uber-hawk par excellence. Um, co-wrote a book with Michael Ledeen, he of the Iran-Contra affair, by the way. Um, basically, I mean, and, and not everything he said about Iran, by the way, is false. Um, there's state sponsorship for terrorism abroad, the expansion of the Khomeinist uh, mission well beyond the borders of the Islamic Republic into the Middle East and Syria, Yemen, Lebanon, etc. Um, but he was he was he was at the far end of the Iran hawk spectrum, and I I detect from some of um, let's say the the sort of the neoconservatives who have aligned with Trump. Uh, at least tactically for the moment, that there's this sense that, that they, they, they came so close, if not to getting their war with Iran, then to just putting all this maximum pressure on Iran and the, the Obama resistance, the, the so-called, uh, uh, what's their favorite term, the echo chamber, robbed them of that. Um, the, the other element is, and we forget this, the, in the phone call with, with uh, Kislyak, the then Russian ambassador to the United States, Michael Flynn was also putting a case for Russia to veto a UN Security Council resolution condemning settlement expansion in the West Bank. And the United States at that vote famously abstained, which incensed a lot of people on the uh, American right. Uh, and it was, it was basically Obama's final fuck you to Benjamin Netanyahu. So they see, their argument is, no, 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 no. Mike Flynn was advancing American interests by essentially running his own shadow government or conducting his own diplomacy without even being in government yet. Uh, he was not hobbling or compromising American interests. Uh, and so again, this is they, they have removed Donald Trump from the equation. It's simply about the agenda that they were looking to pursue and that they, they feel that they can still pursue with Donald Trump in power for another four years. And so, you know, a lot of these people you would class as anti-anti-Trump, but I think in recent days, many of them have gone over the line from being anti-anti-Trump into just being outright pro-Trump. They just would refuse to acknowledge that about themselves. Who do you think is going to win, Joe Biden or Donald Trump? I still, look, um, I'm still very worried about this. And, uh, you know, it, it says a lot. There was a good piece in New York Magazine arguing that Donald Trump is, is, is not down and not out just yet. And in fact, I mean, given the state of everything, you know, he goes on telly and he says, uh, maybe you should drink bleach or stick a, a UV lamp up your arse as a way of curing the plague. Um, yesterday or two days ago, he tweeted that uh, Joe Scarborough may have killed a, a congressional staffer. I mean, bonkers, bonkers shit that would normally sink anybody's chance for re-election. And of course, an economy uh, worse off than at any point since the Great Depression with what, what, what do you got, 60 million people filing for unemployment. I mean, it's, you know, America is, is, in, is on life support at the moment. Uh, and yet, and yet, the guy still polls higher now than he did in the early days of his presidency when there wasn't really a crisis to contend with. Um, Joe Biden is at most 10 points ahead by some other metrics, five points ahead. This isn't, this isn't done and dusted and it should be. 
and that's what gives me a great concern. And, and, and now, again, coming back to the earlier discussion, this whole Obamagate deep state conspiracy nonsense, this is Trump's way of essentially saying the fix was in from the start. I never had a fighting chance. They always wanted to take me out of power undemocratically. They've used skullduggery. They've used uh, covert operations. They've used uh, surveillance and, and bugging mechanisms to destroy my administration from the get-go. And then he tweets yesterday or today, Lindsey Graham subpoena Barack Obama. So this, it's, this, is, this has now become you know, the reality series par excellence, right? The series finale is yeah. the, the company has gone bankrupt. The current CEO is losing his mind in a Lear-like fashion. And he demands the former CEO appear before the Klieg lights to take ownership of why the country, or excuse me, why the company has gone tits up. I mean, that, that is a ratings bonanza. And that, that has been going to become his reelection campaign strategy. He can't run on the economy. He can't run against, you know, the dark specter of communism because Bernie ain't the nominee. Um, he can run on, you know, Joe Biden is a walking corpse, fine. But right now, Biden is, is nowhere to be found because he's hunkered down in his basement. Um, so it's got to be the, the, the last guy did me in. This is all about Obama and his minions. And they, they, they destroyed me from the start. And look at how many of his of his little base of, of cronies and uh, and and you know courtiers is just lapping this shit up. So I, I, again, you know, you we, we sit here and we joke about you know whose country is more fucked. <laughs> Brits are stupid. Americans are stupid. No, I think I think a, a large slice of the population of my country is just irretrievably dumb at this point. And it, it worries me because I do think that that, that could hand him a reelection. So it know. feels some of the stuff, the, the, the intensity of the blame game, it feels Hitlerian. And I don't I mean, I'm 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 very conscious that that comparing anyone to Hitler is foolish. And it's one of my rules on Twitter don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But you don't have to do it. You, know, you, could, you could simply just say it's the stab in the back theory. How did we lose Vietnam? How did we lose China? Well, how did we lose America? It was the last president. That's what they're, that's what they're selling. You don't have to go to the, you know, uh, the, the Hitlerian comparisons on this. It's, there, are, there are ample other ones to choose from. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, it, it's the paranoid style in American politics it's coming from the Oval Office, and it may actually deliver. That is... Shall we do your parish? Is... How are things in the UK? Oh, oh. So there is officially... Um, so what's happened is we saved the NHS, um, but... but what, but mass death, actually, the, the main um, battlefront was in, was in and continues to be in the care homes, which are privately run, underfunded, and the people who work in them are underpaid and they don't have enough protection. Classically, uh, certainly in uh, London and the southeast where everything's so expensive and it's hard to get people to do things, many, many uh, care homes are staffed by immigrants, people from um, the Philippines, the world over, whatever. So um, the numbers um, of people who have died in the care homes are huge. There is a, all of this is difficult because we're trying to make international comparisons and it's difficult. Basically, the government has been making international comparisons for seven weeks because the international comparisons show Britain in a, in a good light until just the other day when the international comparison showed that Britain had the worst death numbers officially um, for the whole of Europe, second only in the world to the United States. And here's the course for a bit of optimism and hope, but remember there isn't an election for another five years, is that Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, is opposing in a smart way. So what's good if you're on the left of British politics, and right. I am, is that um, the idiocy of, I mean, I, I, there were times over um, 
Corbyn giving um, the Kremlin a break over things like Salisbury, uh, the Skripals. It, it, it felt that Jeremy Corbyn was Vladimir Putin's useful idiot. Those days are over. Mm. What you've got now is this fascinating contest between Boris Johnson, populist, great with people, massive charmer, great schmoozer, um, kind of guy, historically, uh, you would say, oh, I'd love to have a drink with him. Mm. And at the same time, against him is now a QC, a former uh, director of public prosecutions, a really, really smart lawyer who is using the House of Commons, the new, uh, you know, a coronavirus House of Commons, which is denuded of people who don't have the... the um, the the mass roar of the stampeding wildebeest of the Tory backbenchers egging Boris on, that's gone. It's echoing in quiet and it feels like a courtroom. And in the courtroom, you've got <laughs> Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, has become the defendant. And each week, <clears throat> what happens is that Keir goes for him, but it, it's not, there are no zingers here. Keir is actually, I mean, you know, he's a bit dull. His style is forensic. And every now and then you kind of want him to sort of punch the words out. So he really hits the guy and he deflects. But nevertheless, over time, what uh, what you're building up is a position where Boris Johnson is being taken apart because he says stuff which is wrong. Keir says it's wrong. And then like, uh, yesterday, or whatever it was on uh, PMQs yesterday, Boris um, is challenged over the um, the British government's policy on care homes because what happened was they took people who were elderly and sick out of hospitals and put them into care homes, and some of those people had the virus. And so what happened was the government effectively seeded the virus inside the 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 care home system which is poorer and less well defended than the nhs system Mm. so this was a monumental act of stupidity now i understand i think we all understand why is they were so worried about saving the hospitals that they ended up wrecking the care sector but that's what's happened that was the policy and the only smart way of dealing with this awful political truth is to say that happened we're sorry we got it wrong Boris's instant reaction was, that's not true, Keir Starmer. And so within about 20 minutes, he produced a letter, which he stuck up on Twitter immediately, saying this is what the government policy was up till something like the 12th of March, that it was that we will send um, people into the care sector from hospitals, some of them may have the virus, some of that, uh, those people will be a, a, asymptomatic, i.e. that nobody knows they've got the virus, but we're going to do that because that's the plan, that's the policy. So Boris is now, he tried to reply, but he hasn't. his reply is completely unconvincing. So it gives you some hope that actually he and his government, which has failed, the worst record in Europe, they failed massively, and they are being called to account. On the other hand... Boris has got five years to uh, to deal with this. Mm. So it feels, it, it generally, so Keir Starmer is a massively, uh, you know, he's a far better bet than Joe Biden. I have to say, now remember all, I'm, you know, I'm watching social media and all that stuff. I haven't, I, every single Biden ad, you know, um, um, is pretty powerful. Yes, yeah, I mean, the, the you know, the, 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 I mean, is it what's happening there? Who's doing those ads? Who's who's running his tweets? They're very, very good. And that give credit to Biden here. Even if he's Gaga, he's got people around him who are smart and good. And they're they're on, on social media. Biden's winning hands down. So does but, that matter? Well, does he's not that winning down on social media because he doesn't have the reach and depth of support on Twitter that the president does. I mean, I, I, what, are, what are the stats? How many followers does Trump have versus how many Biden has? But what he's doing, and again, it's, it's, it's sort of turning a vice into virtue. You know, Biden is nowhere to be found. Again, he's, he's in his bunker in Delaware. 
Uh, and all they're doing is stitching together Donald Trump putting his foot in his mouth time and time again. And then the end of those ads is usually Biden saying something sweet and, and lovely to either a, a frontline worker um, or, I don't know, um, you know, happy Mother's Day to moms out there, something like that. Uh, it's a bit triocly, but, you know, as, as political advertisements go, it's it works. So it's just it's it's all about the contrast. It's not about Biden's own uh, attributes. And my again, my fear is at some point there is going to be a mashup of the two of them. There is going to be a debate. Now, maybe that debate takes place over computers and, and it's like a Zoom sort of thing or it's a town hall where they're stood, you know, six to you know two feet apart, whatever. Um, and if Biden is Gaga, he's not going to have, nobody's going to be manning the controls. It's just going to be Joe versus Donald, Donald. And, and, you know, Donald is a human wrecking ball and he's, 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 he's lunatic and he's improvisational and he doesn't know what the hell he's saying, but there's such a ferocity with which he says it that again, his supporters line up and think that it's just, it's powerful that this is what leadership looks like. It's a pantomime, but it's a pantomime that they, they, they mistake for the real thing. And I don't know. I mean, um, what is he going to throw at Biden? His dead son, uh, Burisma, um, Obamagate, because now Biden has been named as one of the officials who was privy to or helped con- contribute to the unmasking of Michael Flynn. Um, it, this is what worries me. And yeah, Biden isn't a strong candidate. Keir, Keir Starmer is. I mean, and isn't he? Labor is polling above the Tories, I think, for the first time in how many years? Because you got rid of that. With, uh, 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 since Rachel began. It, it's not quite. It's that um, the Boris's approval, net approval rating is twenty two, but mm-hmm. uh, Keir Starmer's net approval rating is twenty three, and that didn't take long. Effectively, he's only had uh, two PMQs um, with the Prime Minister because the Prime Minister was sick, and in that time, he's managed to to get one one approval um, a point above Boris. Boris is still, the last polls, um, Boris or the Tories are still on something like 50 and um, uh, Labour's on 33. But a lot of this is just the kind of wish that from ordinary people that the government will uh, will get through this thing because they need the government to function. They need the government to get the, the right calls. There was something kind of creepy and depressing, though, uh, on Sunday, the mail on Sunday, ever so close to the cabinet, ran a story that um, that Matt Hancock, the health secretary, who seems to be, well, people like me think that he seems to be a decent man who's trying to do the best he can. And and obviously, you know, things are, are, are very dark. We have, again, the um, the worst numbers in Europe. And we and if you take another metric, which is the, the number of excess deaths, the Financial Times, which isn't a left-wing newspaper, obviously, says that the number of excess deaths is 60,000 over what it should normally be. And um, that some of those deaths will be of cancer patients, heart attacks, people who've got strokes, who, who were afraid to go to hospital. And because of... Uh, so that isn't COVID-related. But the vast majority of that 60,000 excess death deaths are going to be COVID deaths, everybody thinks. Anyway, the... What appeared on the Mail on Sunday on Sunday was that that, that there'd been a row, and um, um, Matt Hancock, the health guy, had said to Boris Johnson, oh, "Give me a break," and then kind of like knives are out for Matt Hancock, mm-hmm. and and I just I just reacted to this with a kind of massive sense of depression because I I thought to myself, "Oh God, what a shower." So here's the thing, is they're softening up Matt Hancock, who, who it seems uh, to lots of people is trying to do his best as health secretary in an impossible situation. They're softening him up for the blame game. And there was something about, and this flows from the top, and you kind of feel that it's Boris. He's super, super aggressive. Mm-hmm. Now, our listeners, our two or three listeners might not know, but when I was on The Observer, in the 90s, I was, uh, I, w- I was a war correspondent. I went to Iraq, Afghanistan, blah, 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 Yugoslavia, uh, as was. But also, I used to write um, when I came back and spent a little time in Britain to get my head uh, together. Um, I would do 
um, uh, funny comic feature uh, feature pieces, partly just to re you know reassert my belief in um, in human goodness or human silliness, give me a break. And some of the time, the other guy in the um, working for the Sunday Telegraph, the opposition, was Boris Johnson. And I, there were two particular stories I did where there he was. One of which, and I've kind of uh, ruined my um, uh, punchline, but never mind. But one of them was, I can remember, there was a love um, uh, um, singles event in a supermarket. for uh, So people would go to the supermarket at, at midnight and they could um, bump into uh, love interests or whatever. Um, and it was partly, it was like a... A, a clever advertising ploy by the supermarkets to get um, councils to me, uh, to permit twenty four seven shopping. Anyway, that was the story, and it was I think it happened on a, a Friday night, so it was a gift for the Sunday newspapers. Mm. So who do I see walking up and down the the cat food aisle? But Boris Johnson of the uh, <laughs> of the bloody Sunday Telegraph. That's the kind of guy he was, and those are the kind of stories he did. Yeah. Then uh, there was another time there was a um, there were some travellers, and um, there's a big kind of fear, particularly in Middle England. You've got a beautiful village, you've got a cricket pitch, and then the travellers come and they put up their caravans, and then life is hell for a bit. And it's a kind of staple of um, the right wing British newspapers. And this was a particularly kind of big uh, moral panic that happened. And I went along uh, for the Observer to write a kind of uh, vaguely left-wing take on all of this. Mm. And there was Boris Johnson. And of all these, you know, terrifying travellers, the person I described as looking like a kind of mad polar bear was, was, was the most frightening of all, and that's Boris Johnson. What is weird and disturbing is this figure of fun, this, this sort of like slightly uh, fantastic clown figure, is now our prime minister. And he's now our prime minister in the time of the virus, and he's leading the country um, out of the European Union, the world's largest trading organisation, to do Brexit, while the economy, as it is, is doing in the States, is tanking. It's tanking. So it just feels crazy. And you can tell from the way that Keir Starmer is sort of ripping him to shreds in the House of Commons, he really isn't across the detail. And right. there's, there's a specific thing I felt about this when I was, was thinking about him, and it was that he doesn't like to say no to people. Mm. He loves... Uh, you know, he's massively successful uh, with women. And I'm sure that, you know, a thing you've got to do if you're a responsible adult is you can fall in love with somebody and then you can fall in love with another woman the next day and you've got to say, no, I'm with this person because I really, really love her. And there's something wrong with Boris's makeup, something wrong inside his head. He doesn't do that. Mm. So the other day he did this thing. I mean, I'm, 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 I, where he just said, like, uh, you know, yes, or rather his spokesman said, happy Monday, we're all going to open up. And that was the story in the tabloids. And at the same time, the very same time, he's saying to the, the, uh, the medics and the doctors, we're not going to make any serious changes. And it's as if he's pleasing whoever's talking to him. They said this about Lord Salisbury, that he was, uh, was a Victorian prime minister, that he was like a cushion. He bore the impression of the person who last sat on him. Right. I'm not seeing I'm what you do get is you get self he's steely in his self-interest but he's not steely in the national interest and in yeah, that way it does feel very much like Trump. It's very interesting um you mentioned Lord Salisbury. So I'm I'm actually working on an essay at the moment um about what sort of art will emerge post-pandemic or what sort of art will people want to consume? Um, and I, I have a, a strong inclination that it's not going to be art that traffics in, you know, the way we live now uh, or the, the new normal. Um, it's not going to account for the adaptations and accommodations the modern world is going to have to make, whether it's simply the, the death of the office uh, or the death of the theater as being mooted in, in, in New York on Broadway um, or even, you know, the, the slow and sad diminishment of going out to eat or going to the pub. I think it's going to be nostalgic and I think it's going to be, you know, this sort of um, this this woozy search for 
an idyllic past that probably never was as idyllic as we we're going to make it out to be. And, you know, one of the things I've come across is um, the Houseman fad, which Orwell places from 1910 to 1925. And if you read his essay, Inside the Whale, which is actually really worth reading right now because it's about, it's mostly about Henry Miller and Tropic of Cancer and how that book manages to simply um, accept the world around it without having to weigh in politically or take a side. It just sort of, it's resigned and yet much more powerful for simply being a sort of sponge of mundane details. Anyway, he goes through this survey of literature of the last 40 years, right up until the point, as he was writing Inside the Whale, World War II was breaking out. So this is kind of important. And he says, you know, is, look at if you look at the sort of camps and movements that had got across, you know, what was it when I was a boy, when I was 17 years old, everybody knew every line of a Shropshire lad by heart. And, you know, British soldiers marching off to the trenches in World War I kept these poems in their, in their breast pockets. When they returned, those who survived, if they had been maimed or gassed, they still were reciting the poetry. But then their kids recited it. So it's sort of like Beatlemania, except it was about this Victorian poet who barely left the fucking house. I mean, he was a hermit and a, a more of a classicist worrying about his mistranslations of Horace than anything else. And what was it about this, 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 this series of poems, 63 poems that captured the imagination of an entire country and in, invented the very concept of Englishness, according to the critic, Charles McGrath. And it's, you know, it was sort of a, a Gothic pastoral, you know, the country is better than the city. Uh, the country though is full of hope and erotic desire, mostly adolescent. It was all about young men, you know, pushing the plow in the morning and then trying to win thy fair maiden's hand in the evening and then being rebuffed or being betrayed. But it, it was dripping with death, suicide, hangings, uh, the, the, the carpentering of the gallows by which people were hanged, uh, slit throats, people being buried in faraway conflicts outside of, of, of England itself. But there was something kind of uh, mesmerizing, a kind of fallen Arcadia element about it. And I wonder, I mean, it was written by a guy who, as I say, was a Latin professor at Cambridge, barely left the fucking house, never got off with anybody, including the love of his life, Moses Jackson, and his sometime roommate. And he was just so traumatized by that experience. He managed to write something that spoke to an entire generation, which experienced tragedy firsthand. Who is going to be the sort of novelist, or I guess in the contemporary parlance, the TV showrunner, who really captures life for the post-pandemic world that we're waking up to. Uh, I have a feeling it's not going to be a reporter who's embedded now with the NHS or at some uh, ER clinic in, in Brooklyn hospital tending to, I think it's, it, we're going to retreat into the past. We're going to want to, to sort of enter into a dreamlike state about the world as we imagined it was. Um, which is interesting because that, you know, in times of crisis, you look to try and explain the crisis and to get as much detail and get you know in the muck as much as possible. I don't think people are going to want to do that anymore. I'm, um, Blue remembered hills is one of his lines, isn't it, Houseman? Or am I going gaga? Yeah, no, and he he also cocked up yeah. the you know the the the, um, the descriptions of you know various landmarks, churches that didn't have steeples. He gave them steeples, so. You know, it, it wasn't journalistic. It, again, it was a, an imagined place. It existed, of course. No, Anybody never, he hardly you're, you're ever, right. not from Shropshire and he never visited. Uh, so this is, this, <clears> this is what I'm getting at here is, is we are going to, we're going to occupy our creative uh, space with imagined places from the past. That's what I think is it'll going to be, It'll be some ghastly um, nuisance of the Disney Channel and a houseman. Um, the other, the other um, 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 poet I'm thinking about is Louis McNeese, hmm. who wrote this um, fantastic poem uh, set around the time of the Munich Agreement, hmm. and essentially like us, um, I, I'm finding it. I mean, normally I kind of I can write a thousand words a day, yeah. and I'm finding I, I'm writing something like two hundred words a day, if that. I know, it's and and. and I can't, it, it's very hard to concentrate under these circumstances, you know. So Louis, Louis McNeese had this problem because it was, you know, in, in the time of appeasement and afterwards, uh, and in particular Munich, he was, you know, he was aghast at what Neville Chamberlain was doing. But at the same time, he wanted to, you know, he, he, um, 
he had a love affair. It didn't work out. He wrote this wonderful line, and all of London littered with half-remembered kisses. Mm. And every now and then when I'm sort of cycling around the empty city as it is now, and I, I, that line comes to me, and it, it gives a, a kind of melancholy smile because that's also my London as, as, uh, as well. But at the same time, he also writes, and I, I, I've forgotten the line, but it, it, about this, this incredible difficulty of concentrating because you've got no idea what yeah. the future holds. Are we all going to go to war? You know, are we going to die in the virus? And therefore it's difficult. So I think it's perfectly natural and human for people to want to go back to a happier mythical time before. And, you know, we're and I think you're right. But that's, mean, where the science, that's where the arts will be. Yeah, as, you know, as Laurel points out, it, it's, it's not as neat and tidy chronologically as you'd like it to be. Um, uh, you know, some some poets of a certain movement actually capture the, the period before. But anyway, you know, we're already in this nostalgic mode. You, you mentioned Peter Pomerantsev. He wrote, I think, the best essay about life in the pandemic, and it was titled In Search of Lost Time. And he sort of ties, you know, the idea of we're all trapped in, in our houses, already reliving some of the glory moments of the past, whether it's a football game that's being live tweeted as though it were happening now or whatever. And then he he draws this analogy to the, the sort of political or historical crises that preceded this, whether it's ISIS trying to recapture a medieval caliphate, um, you know, the, the so-called separatists in East Ukraine who are reconstructing Stalinist statelets, uh, including using Soviet-era legal codes to enforce their grim rule of law, um, to, of course, you know, Johnson and Brexit. Actually, I mean, Shropshire Lad is sort of is dripping with the kind of nostalgia. And McGrath, the critic I mentioned earlier, makes this comparison, too, that, you know, people going to the polls to vote for England out of the EU might have had a Shropshire Lad, if not on, you know, word perfectly recited from their lips, then certainly lingering in the background because it was part of their education growing up. Anyway, yeah, it's this, I, I, we are. I, by the way, the other day I was walking along the um, I try and walk to St. Paul's with my dog um most days um i live near lambeth bridge and it's a beautiful walk and the air is so clear it's 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 comically lovely normally it there are so many tourists by the london eye that it, it, it's pointless walking there it's unpleasant the press of people they're all gone and so uh, on i walk and i'd got to waterloo bridge and um it was ve day and i'd missed um and what happened the red arrows were flying uh, across London at that moment, red, white, and blue, and I do this panic diary thing, a little two-minute film which I stick up on Twitter, and and I caught the the um, the smoke um, as the, the contrails as they were fading, red, white, and blue, and I and I just thought of what I should say. You know, what am I going to say on VE Day? And what I said was, well, I'm you know, it's VE Day. I'm thinking of my 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 mum and dad and where they were on the first VE day, and I know my dad was. Um, um, he said he he was he was in his ship. He was a ship's engineer, and he was a very young ship's engineer, like third engineer, but running the thing. And his um, they'd heard on the radio that Himmler had been arrested, and my dad said, "And all we all we need now is a Labour government." And the rest of the uh, the wardroom, the um, the other ship's officers, all booed because they were all Tories. But never mind. Mm. And my mum would have been; she'd been lived through the Liverpool Blitz as a schoolgirl. She was, I think, a land girl, like eighteen. Wherever she was, she would have been having a laugh. And I said, you know, good good luck. To, um, you know, I, I want to thank these marvelous people, my mum and dad, but also that whole generation. But my father and mother, who suffered. Um, a lot during the war and a ton of my friends, uh, my dad's friends died in the Battle of the Atlantic. He never once said, oh, you've got to watch it with the Germans or the Germans are horrible. He didn't like Hitler, but he never, ever felt that. So I'm slightly pushing back on the idea that that, that everybody in Britain um, thinks that that the the kind of Brexit narrative of British exceptionalism was the thing that that um, that that generation believed above all. Yes, lots of old people voted for Brexit, but certainly 
um, there are a ton of old people who went through the war and when they got to the end of it, well, let's not do a war again, shall we? Let's not hate people. Let's not mm. be unreasonable. Let's be kind and good. And, 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 I, and I don't like it when, when the idea of fighting the Nazis becomes muddied with the idea of British exceptionalism and, and, and we're somehow um, so much better. We did a good thing in that war. I'm very proud of, of, of British history in that time. I really, really am. But it, but it feels it's a distort. It's a myth that the, the Brexiteers have have flogged, and they have taken something true, and they have somehow muddied it and made it made it dirty. And I, and I um, anyway, I can go on about this all bloody day. But it, it's something that upsets me. That's the as, very- as, as a not based in actual, that's the very definition of nostalgia it's not based in actual lived experience it's based in a kind of yes. version of it which then becomes instrumentalized for political purposes you know the best way to predict or to design a future is to misremember the past right um but it's funny as you're talking i i pulled up this this short poem by chesterton who was you know one of the the great catholic reactionaries of of, of your country um, and it's kind of captures this, this ethos, this sort of little Englander ethos. It was called the international idea it goes, the international idea, the largest and the clearest is welding all the nations now, except the one that's nearest. This compromise has long been known, the scheme of partial pardons in ethical societies and small suburban gardens, the villas and the chapels where I learned with little labor, the way to love my fellow man and to hate my next door neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> He was, uh, he was a Catholic rea- reactionary. He was also funny. Wrote detective. Um, and, sorry, he wrote de- the detective story. Kind of invented that that genre, didn't he? Or yeah, improved upon yeah, well, it. He well, um, I, Conan Doyle. I would. Um, there you go. I put, put money on um, on old Sherlock Holmes, but but. But he um, he played with it, Father Brown. Um, he played it with it, and we had fun. But yeah, so so what we're going to do is, I suspect, is that the art that will really sell and will really motor is um, is a mythification of our, of of the time before the virus. And yeah. again, it depends how well it goes on. There's there's something. There's a complete, there's a, there's a real um, division in the science, which is there's been tests, for example, in this town, I believe it's called Vaux in Italy, where they've, uh, and also in Iceland, where they found there is um, a huge chunk of people have got the virus, but they didn't have um, bad symptoms or any symptoms at all. Now, that's positive and good news because it means People have had the virus; they won't get it again, but they haven't suffered, and therefore, there is a there's a big kind of hidden iceberg of cases, and that means we can hit herd immunity faster. And then the latest science from Spain is that actually, they think only five percent of people in Spain have had the virus, and yet you've had mass death there. Something like twenty five thousand people have died. So. Either the research in Vaux in Italy and in Iceland is true, or the Spanish research is true. One one chunk of this research is wrong. But if the Spanish research is right, then we may be in an awful, awful position where this thing never goes away and we can't properly, you know, the more we embrace normal life and get back in again, the more um, uh, the disease spreads and the more old people and sick people will die before their time. So that if, if the, the, um, the 5% version is correct, then nostalgia for the old days before the virus will become incredibly powerful. The worry is that the, uh, the right and the far right will, will, will go for those, um, that, that sense of loss and spin it and play with it. So well, that, they've already I'm sunk not... their teeth, at least in the U.S. context, they've already sunk their teeth into the idea that the, the major metropolitan areas should be sacrificed on the altar of national greatness. Um, 
the, the, the I forget his name, uh, editor in chief of the Federalist, which is the, the sort of premier pro-Trump uh, website, at one point tweeted, you know, the rest of the country shouldn't be made to suffer for Manhattan. So in other words, you know, American right to New York drop dead, literally. Um, and that was is only I mean, that has more, I think, valence in the English context, you know, the, the preference for the countryside to the city. But I think that's coming. That's going to be coming true here, too. You, already you're seeing articles. And I don't know, you know, to what extent they actually reflect the reality or they're just sort of uh, three makes a trend kind of thing. But, you know, um, city dwellers saying the hell with this moving out to the I mean, I did it myself. Right. I left. New York City proper for the suburbs of Michigan to ride out the worst of this thing. Um, and I wonder how many people are just going to say it's, it's not worth returning to city life or, or perhaps they, they even can't because a they're they've lost their apartment or their house because they couldn't make rent because they lost their job. Um, and B, you know, the, the rules of engagement will forever change. Are we going to have, you know, those sort of packed in like sardines, uh, nightclubs and bars and, and restaurants with tables the size of postage stamps. I don't know. I, I wonder what this, this new normal is going to look like. And yeah, it's going to be, I think, you know, nobody's going to want to, there'll be dystopian sort of works created about the future as there always are. I mean, Lawrence Wright just wrote a book uh, which essentially predicted the pandemic, right? And it was a work of fiction. He's such, he's such a jammy bastard. I mean, yeah. I got, ah. <laughs> he manages to capture the, 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 the latest catastrophe of 9-11 with a Pulitzer Prize-winning book about how Al-Qaeda did that. And now he's, he's predicted the future with a work of fiction. So good on him. Yeah, he, he also, yes, good on him. He wrote, as you know, um, I wrote a book called... Uh, uh, Scientology Church of Fear and then he, he wrote um, um, Going Clear and um, I mean partly because this is Scientology is an American disease perhaps I would call it that it's an American cult they would deny it of course but um, he, he, he's for him to write this um, this book about the about life under a pandemic before the pandemic hit is yeah. an extraordinary stroke of um well it's very smart and i am envious and let's be honest about it john but um but nevertheless i'm 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 looking forward to read it i've been reading i don't have you read um the um station 11 um which is a novel by i'm going to walk over to um let me check who's it by it's by Emily St. John Mandel. Yeah, it's so I'm just walking over to my um, books by my bed. Emily St. John Mandel, Station Eleven, and it's set in a pandemic in the future. And you have some of this kind of ripping apart of society and, and this tremendous nostalgia for the time before. And what, what she's exploring is a love affair between the, the key protagonist, who's uh, the heroine, of the novel, and she has a kind of disastrous love affair with a with a um, randy actor, Hollywood actor, a kind of Jack Nicholson figure, who lets her down again and again and again. But her memories of this previous life are so infused with kind of love, and the, these were the great days. Mm. And um, and I'm finding this book; it's extremely well written. It's beautifully written and very powerful. But I can barely read a couple of days, uh, pages a day because I find it so depressing and sad because I can see that the the author's imagination is inhabiting my life. And I and I and I and I I can't bear it. You know what I watched the other day? I watched Airplane um, (laughs) and. And I like, you know, uh, da, 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 hospital. What's a hospital? What, what, hospital? Uh, it's a big building with sick people in, in it, but that's not important right now. And I like, and I'm, and I know what I'm doing is I'm, um, I'm hiding from reality yeah. and I'm going back into, in my serious, I'm, I, I, at some point I'm going to watch, and I love the film, Mars Attacks. Um, where the uh, where the space alien, wah, 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 um, the space aliens 
go around zapping all the uh, the Senate and um, and uh, uh, you know you know the film you know the film yeah. so so the escapism escapism in art is fair and human escapism in politics is dangerous and can lead us into a dark path that's well said I actually I've I've avoided any kind of I mean people have been watching um what's that film outbreak uh which was a 90s I I see it as sort of pandemic pornography wasn't a very good movie but it kind of gave you a flavor of what would happen if a small town got infected with a bug you know do we nuke the town or do we you know, and, and the race for the cure happens all too quickly and it's sort of skin of skin of the teeth kind of thing. And then that other one that Soderbergh did, uh, the, the title of which escapes me, which has gone sort of, to coin a phrase, viral at the moment, uh, which also very <laughs> captures the reality of, of all of this. But see, I, I find I have no stomach for any of that stuff. So if I want, yeah. if I want my mood really channeled by cinema, uh, the best film I've, I've watched recently, again, is Alien. Because the claustrophobia and the sort of visceral quality of this thing inside you growing uh, that you can't control and that's ultimately going to devour you or kill you, uh, I find that much more compelling than anything to do with epidemiology um, or, you know, sort of global disease, that kind of thing. I just, I I don't want to know from that, you know, I want to, and I guess this is also a kind of form of nostalgia. I'm looking at horror films made. 30 or 40 years ago, which captured my childhood imagination and now speak to me in a way that contemporary stuff, including documentaries and news reports on where did this come from? Was it out of a lab in Wuhan? Blah, blah. I, don't, I just don't care. I want it to be over with, but I also want to understand and I want somebody to tap into my psyche at the moment. And the best way to do that is with things that don't deal directly in the virus. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean... First of all, I don't know what the future of film and TV is going to be um, because Hollywood is completely shut down. Uh, and the stuff that's, you know, it's weird too because, you know, growing up, of course, I was I was a, a young child when the first, actually, no, the first Star Wars came out before I was born, but then I was obsessed with Star Wars, the original film trilogy as a child. I was very excited for the prequels, which of course let me down. And then was sort of kind of intrigued and excited, especially because I had a kid to see the sequel. And this this online furor about the degeneration of this franchise, I mean, which goes into kind of Talmudic levels of discourse about characterization and the force. What is it? But what 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 they're all doing is basically saying you've deprived us of our nostalgia, right? You've you've taken away that spark that we had when we were six or seven years old. You've turned it into this commercialized behemoth. You've Disneyfied it, uh, and we want it back. We want our, our childhood back. So that's that grievance, right there. You know, you've 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 turned. What, it on. What's the um, what's the latest one which I've seen? What's it called again? Um, with Daisy Lowe, yeah, where right. she uh, which she, she zaps the emperor. Um, yeah. And I'm not, I hope I'm uh, spoiler. I'm not going to give the public too much. Yeah. But the beauty of Daisy Lowe is that her, uh, she's a niece or grandniece, whatever it is, of Arnold Ridley, who was um, um, uh, the lovely old guy in Dad's Army. Mm. And the moment. I knew that Daisy Lowe was uh, Private Godfrey uh, was the role that Arnold Ridley played. And he always used to lift up his hand and say, excuse me, sir, may I be excused? So he'd go to the loo. And the idea that here was a soldier who was uh, fighting, the, fighting the Nazis, who was so old and decrepit, he has to uh, raise his hand so he'd go to the loo. But at the same time, there was something noble and good about that. And I knew that I had to watch this particular Star Wars film and would love it because Arnold Ridley's um, niece, <laughs> uh, the man from Dad's Army's niece, was the uh, was the star in it. Now, that's kind of weird, but that's the kind of gooey mess my brain's in. Uh, Mike, um, it's time to, um, uh, to wrap up. So, do you think I'm going to win my 500 quid bet that Joe Biden will defeat Donald Trump? 
you asked me the same question, but now you just bring it back to your own financial interest, don't you? I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I still think, he, you know, that Trump has a, a fighting chance better than he should. Um, I mean, if, if you if you force me to give a yes or no at the moment, I would say probably yes, just because of the extent of the damage done to the economy. Um, but I, I wouldn't put 500 quid on it, unlike you. No, that's because I'm a romantic old fool. Um, you've been listening to The Last Call with two boozy hacks. Take care. Now wash your hands. <laughs>